We're headed to Judges chapter 17. Judges 17 and 18. Interesting text that we get into the book of Judges. We are now in that section of the book of Judges. If you've been joining with us, you've been following that we, for the last few weeks, have been doing a study just going chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph, looking at a variety of those individuals. We are now in the last section of the book where we're not going to get any story about any one individual judge. Now what he does in this book, the author of the book of Judges, he gives a summary of that's more of what's going on overall. Uh, in this section, if you look at a couple different spots, in chapter six, 17, you're going to notice a couple different times he does this. Actually, four times in this last section that he does it. Jump down to about verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel. Chapter 18, verse 1. In those days there was no king in Israel. Chapter 19, verse 1. It says, in those days when there was no king in Israel. And he does it again later on in the book. His point is he is getting us a time frame of what's going on. And he's making sure that we understand that this is that time period pre-Saul, David, and and, uh, uh, Solomon and the others that come up. It's also indicating to us that during this time period there was no centralized, strong leadership that was being provided. The leadership was being provided by the various judges in various areas. Now what happens in this last sect, is he gives us a little bit more about what's going on. And it's more of uh, stories that he gives us about the climate of what's going on in the book of Judges. We've already seen that. We've seen that the people have gone away, that they have... Uh, drifted from the Lord and then the judges bring them back. And so what he does and exactly in this last four chapters, we don't know exactly when they occur in a chronological order. Were they early events in the early part of the book of Judges or in the latter part of the book of Judges? And there's debates. And God bless those who want to debate it and try to figure it out. But the conclusion is, there's, there's, could they be happening in the middle of this 200-year period, at the beginning or at the end? And that's up for, like I say, up for debate. But what it is, is it gives us an idea of exactly what was the mindset of the people. Instead of giving us a story about one heroic character, he's telling us what was the mindset of the people as a whole. And he defines it in several different statements. Chapter 17, verse 6, we already saw one of those statements where these are those important statements that show up in the book of Judges. In those days when there was no king, every man did that which was... Yeah, you've heard this. If you've been in any type of Sunday school, any type of time where you've read through it, you understand that that is the key phrase of the book of Judges. Not just once, but it shows up again in the latter part of this book where he says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And so to get that, to get that idea as he's recording the historical events to understand who he's writing to. He's writing to believers who are following in the decades later. And he's giving them information, not only about heroic characters, but telling them as part of his book, it's a warning section. These last four chapters are saying, this is how bad it got. This is how, how people got corrupted and how they started swallowing some of the Canaanite religions. And we need to be careful. So Samuel or whoever is writing it later on is writing to warn people. So we're going to get a lot of lessons out of this section of the book. Not about one person and how God used them, but basically how the people as a whole were drifting from the Lord. And we need to come and say, okay, there's warnings for us. That's why I entitled this message, you know, Junk Food to avoid spiritual junk food. There's a lot of it in this chapter. And it is, the more I was reading and studying these, this, just this chapter 17, 18 for tonight, it is just a frustrating 
uh, experience to read through and put yourself there and say, what in the world were they doing? Here, watch the story as it unfolds, okay? As we just kind of get a feel of what's going on, there's a lot of garbage taking place. There's a lot of junk food spiritually that happens that leads them into a, into a, a point where they become very, very flabby spiritually, out of shape spiritually, and it just fits the whole book. The story starts off in chapter 17, verse 1. You read it, you look, and it gives you a man's name. It talks about Micah. This is not Micah the prophet. This is just a fellow by the name of Micah who we don't know anything more about him other than he lives in the area of Ephraim. Remember, Ephraim also is a very important part in that time period because it houses the main sanctuary center for the Jews down in Shiloh. And so this man's in that region. And we understand the Ephraimites, they gave problems through the book of, through the book of Judges with Gideon and Jephthah. And we understand that. So if this is early in the book, what you have is just giving an idea that here in Ephraim, here's what was going on. There's a guy by the name of Micah. And the story starts out talking about him and his mom. And if you look down in verses 2, 3, 4, down in chapter 17, you'll read as you look at it that mom had 1,100 shekels that somebody took from mom. She doesn't know who took it, and she pronounces a curse on whoever took it. Now, she's pronouncing the curse against the fellow who stole her money, her 1,100 shekels, and she says it in front of Micah. So Micah hears about it. Does she know that he's the one that stole from his own mother? Okay, he doesn't tell us what she knows, but she pronounces a curse. Micah hears the curse, and Micah responds and says, I'm the one who stole your 1,100 shekels. By the way, just put it in perspective. Um, the 1,100 shekels of silver, later on in the story, Micah hires a priest, and the guy agrees to work for Micah for 10 shekels of silver per year, plus food, uh, plus, uh, food and, and shelter. So 1,100 shekels is a lot of money. It's a huge amount of money that he stole from his mom. He brings back to his mom and his mom. Now, if your kid stole 1,100 shekels, let's kind of just throw that up. If they stole $50,000 from you, would you be upset? Would you want to smack them? Okay, we, we don't want to use those terms out loud. Would you say to them, oh, that's okay. Yeah, it's okay you do that. And so Micah comes back and he says, mom, I'm the one who stole it. And mom blesses him. If you look at the rest of the verse, look at verses 2, 3, 4. Mom starts praising her son because he's such a good boy. See how good he is? He brought the money back. You know, in my mind, I'm going, wait a minute. The problem is he took it in the first place, okay? And so she says, oh, I'm so glad that you brought the money back. And she says, Micah, here's what you can do. You can take the money and you, I, it's wholly dedicated to God. She uses the phrase, it's wholly dedicated to the Lord to make graven images. So you, you got it. And she goes on and she gives him the money that's been wholly dedicated to the Lord. She says, Micah, I want you to take this, the 1100 shekels, silver, uh, silver shekels that you stole from me. I want you to take it and go make, get some idols made. Some idols that we can worship Jehovah, L-O-R-D, capital letters. She's still using Jehovah's name in this. And she says, we want to worship God, so go ahead, take it. And she gives him the money, but take note. Look at it closely. Here's how much she gives him, 200 shekels. That has been wholly dedicated to the Lord. She gives him 200. As you look at it, does anything in this story seem weird so far? That you look at and say, this is not appropriate. Anything stand out? Yes, no? What's that? What's that? The graven images. The graven images should absolutely make us go, what? You're worshiping God with graven images. What verse immediately comes to mind or what concept? 
Thou shalt not make... Yeah, right back to the Ten Commandments. No graven images to worship God. She's doing it. Anything else bother you in this account that you say, this isn't, this is just it's weird. It's weird bad. She blesses him for stealing. Okay, yeah, he's returning it, but she's got no other response other than, oh, bless you, son. Anything else strike you odd? She wholly dedicated 1100 but how much does she give? Yeah, who does this remind you of in the New Testament? Ananias and Sapphira that made a commitment that we gave everything, but they kept it. Okay, so you got that story unfolding, and it's giving you a sense that these people, we'll get to it, these people, what, what they're like. Okay, Micah takes the money, and he makes icons. By the way, if you look at the terminology, just for clarification, as it says down at the end of verse 3, to make graven images and molten image, all that is is it's the same thing but different. The graven image would be something that's made out of wood and then covered with gold, with the silver. The molten image would be something that is all the way through silver. That's all the difference they are. And then he also makes teraphim. The teraphim that are mentioned in verse 5, those are the smaller idols that people would take in their pockets and they would have or hang about their necks. And we're talking about small little idols that you could just keep with you, keep on your person, but it's the same type of thing. And if you notice verse 5, he also has an ephod made. What's an ephod? Or what, when you hear making an ephod, where does it take you to? It's the high priest's garment. It is that vest that had the 12 stones of Israel. And also there was somewhere in there that pouch that had the two stones, the Urim and Thummim, that they would use in order to determine the revelation leading of the Lord. So who gets the ephod? Who's the ephod supposed to be for in the land of Israel? It's only supposed to be one, the high priest only. Only the high priest is supposed to have an ephod. But he makes an ephod. And then it goes on in the story. He sets up and talks about having his own house as a household shrine. And mentioned he has a house of gods in verse 5. That is the idea that he set up a shrine in his house. And then verse 5 says his son becomes his priest. Okay, He appoints you know, the, the oldest, the youngest, we don't know. His son now is the family priest. And sometime later, as the story unfolds, all of a sudden there's a Levite that shows up in the story. The Levite is traveling twice, it says. Twice in the story. You look at down in verses you know, 7, 8, 9. Twice it says that he has left Bethlehem of Judea and he is traveling through this region. And so this, this uh, Levite comes through and he stops at Micah's house. Micah has great hospitality. He invites him. There, finds out he's a Levite. And he says, hey, listen, since you're the tribe of Levite, you're a legitimate priest. So why don't you take the place of my son and become our family priest? And he hires the Levite to become his family priest. And the guy works for him for 10 shekels a year. Now, again, that story is really amazing because look at down in verse 13. In verse 13, Micah says, now God is going to bless me abundantly because I've got my own priest. Okay, that's the mindset that's going on. I've got all of this ritual, and on top of it, I've got, I, I, I got a, my own Levite. Yay! Okay, I'll pause for a second. Anything smell fishy in this part of the story? Anything strike you that's saying, they shouldn't be doing this? Yes, no? What's that? You got to speak louder, I can't hear. They're hiring their own priest. That was totally against what the book of Numbers in Deuteronomy said. You're not supposed to have private priests. You're to have a national priesthood. And that was so that nobody would get a monopoly 
upon the priesthood and control. By the way, if one person is supporting the priest, what could those priests obviously do? They could cater to whatever that one person. Does money talk? Okay, does it control people? Okay, anything else that strikes you odd? Okay, and that's going to come into a bigger play because he is of what tribe that, he's, that, that it says? He's of the Levitical tribe. We're going to come back to that. Hang on to that thought. That's very important. That especially for a Levitical guy to be moving around. Okay, there's something that plays into that. We'll see in just a couple minutes. The ephod idea, the priesthood, your own family. Oh, by the way, when he made his son a priest, does that stink as well? Okay, because his son is of what tribe? He's from Ephraim. You can't have an Ephraimite being the priest. They have to be from the tribe of. And then not only from the tribe of Levite, they also have to be of the right descendants from Aaron's family tree. So there's a lot of things going on in the story. Let's, go, let's talk about the Levite, okay? The Levite that comes in, okay, he's there for a period of time. Then chapter 18 continues the story. Chapter 18 says, oh, around uh, sometime later, several men come traveling through. I'm going to call them point men. Point men in military is the idea they're the out front guys. They're out. These are like the 12 spies that were initially sent in. But this, is, this time there's only a handful of these guys. They come in and they're from the tribe of, of Dan. They are searching for a new place for the tribe of Dan to live. And so they're coming through, they're headed north, they're coming through Ephraim, and they pass by Micah's house. Micah is a very hospitable guy, God bless him for doing that. And so he invites the guys in, they spend the night, and they're at his house, and they get into a conversation. If you read down a little bit further, they recognize the Levite. They recognize that he is from a different region, he's not there, and they get into a conversation with the Levites, and, um, and so the conversation unfolds. They find out that this guy is a Levite. And uh, by the way, they're headed up north. And the story as it unfolds, I'll show you the map in a second. They head farther north. And so in route, they stop here. They talk. And uh, checking out, you know, the new territory that they could go and conquer. And uh, if, you, if you keep it in perspective, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 34, it will tell you, we looked at this in the beginning of the message series, that several of the tribes did not conquer their territory. In fact, go back to chapter 1, verse 34, and you'll notice it says, they did not throw out, I forget the name of the tribe, if it's the Ammonites or Amorites, they didn't throw them out, and as a result, they couldn't live in the plain country, that is the plateaued, the good land, they were forced to live in the hills, because they didn't kick out the Canaanites the way they were supposed to. So they never conquered their land, and they can't get a handle on conquering their territory, so they're looking for new lands. And they're going to end up moving all the way to the northern border, the very edge of Israel, and find an area that they can start all over again. And so while they're there talking, they say, okay, and maybe they realize this guy was, was from the south because he did y'all when he's talking. I don't know what it was that gave away the Levitical priest that he wasn't, he wasn't really native to Micah's territory. You're a
That's what's motivating him. He's violating, he's violating the Old Testament as a priest by being a private priest based on money, being controlled by one man. So he's going to be very, very oriented to giving counsel that people want to hear. So naturally he responds and says, yeah, you're, you're, God's going to bless your journey. Everything's going to be okay. And so the spies continue going north saying, hey, God's in this. This priest told us that. And he's a Levite. He's a priest. And so we're going to go up north and we're going to find a territory. And they do go up north and they find a town called Laish. And that is the town that they're going to end up uh, eventually working with. Let me see if I can give you an idea. Look at the map on either side. This is where the assigned territory is. This is where they're supposed to be. So the Danites are going through Ephraim heading and they will end up all the way up here. This is where the town of Laish is, right at the far northern border, just outside the the territory of the uh, Israelites. And it's an unprotected city. They don't have any allies, and they're, they're a sitting duck. They're an easy target. It's in a little valley. And so what they do is they go there, they, they scope it out, they say, this is really good to come back, and they give their tribe information that this is a good area. And so the people of Dan say, we're ready to move. We're going to take off. And so they send 600 of their soldiers who go ahead of them. And they go back to, they're headed back towards Laish, all the way in the north. I'll take you to the end of the they go all the way. They go all the way up to the Laish, and they conquer the city. They wipe it out, and they rename the city Dan. And then all the way through the rest of the Book of Judges and the Kings, this is the new territory for the Danites, and uh, they end up living up there until they basically disappear off the scene. And by the way, they're left out of the record uh, on a couple different occasions, and including the Book of Revelation. They're out of the uh, the listing of the twelve tribes, and many point back to this very area is because of this migration that they do. We'll come back to that in a second. But when they are in migrating, okay, they're headed on their way to Laish. The uh, the six hundred troops. They have, they're going to go and they're going to follow the same route as the few spies did. So they stop by Micah's house. And when they stop by Micah's house, their spies who are leading him say, Hey, listen, when we stopped at this guy's house, this guy had something really special in his house. He had his own shrine. He had his own idols. He had his own ephod. He had, you know, he, and he has a priest there. If we want God's blessing, and they told us that when we stopped here, we're going to be blessed, we should take these idols to Jehovah and take the ephod and take them with us. Because God will bless us because we'll have those icons with us. So they stop at the house of Micah, and they start raiding the house. Micah's not there, apparently. They start raiding the house, they start taking the idols, and the Levitical priest is so loyal to Micah, he says, Stop! Stop! You can't take the idols. This is my livelihood. Don't take it. And they say, be quiet. Besides, why should you be a priest for just one guy when you can be a priest for all of our families and we'll pay you more? So guess what the priest does? He helps them load up the cart. And they all take off. So the story comes, uh, you know, Micah comes home and Micah and the people who are living with him in this little village, whatever it is, they, uh, they get offended that, hey, somebody stole our idols, tore down our shrine, and they've got it on a cart, and they're hauling it away with our priests that we hired. 
And so the story unfolds that Micah hears that in verse 22, Micah's going after them. And he tracks them down. Verse 22 picks up in some of that story. It says, And when they were a good way from the house of Micah, the men that were in the houses near Micah's house, they gathered together and they overtook these 600. And they cried to the children of Dan and they said, they turned and the Danites said, Hey, what's bothering you? What ails you that you come with such a company? And this, look at this phrase. You've got to underline it. You've got to mark it. This is telling of what's going on. Micah says, you have taken away my gods. What's the next phrase? What's your Bible say? Which I have made. What does that tell you about his mindset? Okay. You have taken away my gods, which I have made, and you say you've taken my priest, and you're gone away. I don't have anything spiritually anymore. What is this that you say, what ails you? Come on, guys. It's obvious. You stole from me. The children of Dan said, Let not your voice be heard among us, lest there's some of us, amidst, some of our group might be angry fellows. They'll come out and they'll you know, run upon you and you'll lose your own life. You better not push us. You know, some of our guys we might not be able to control and they'll take you out and so with the lives of your household. And the children of Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turns, goes back his own way, and that's the end of Micah's story. Micah's lost all of his idols, his gods that he has made, and he's lost his priest. And so it gives you an insight into what's going on, and the story unfolds. The rest of the story talks about how they go all the way up there, they conquer Laish, and they set up their own tabernacle. In fact, if you jump down towards the end of the chapter, this is telling. The children of Dan, verse 30, set up the graven image Images. And down in verse uh, 31, they set them up, Micah's graven images, which he had made all this time, though, there's the house of God that was in Shiloh. And so you got, you got the story ending. In fact, look at verse 30. Look at verse 30. It, uh, it gives us, at the very end of the story, the name of the priest. What's his name? The priest that was out for hire. Okay, his name is Jonathan. What's interesting that some of you might have difference in your Bibles? He's the son of who? Does anybody have anything else that goes beyond that? The son of Manasseh, does anybody have anything different? Son of Moses. Okay, here's why. Gershom, I'm sorry, uh, Jonathan, who's a descendant of Gershom. Gershom is, in the Old Testament, Gershom is one of Moses' sons, one of the two. It's mentioned several times. And even the Jewish scholars in the Old Testament era commented that this probably was to read Moses, not Manasseh. The reason that there many would conclude that is this consonants are the same. In the Old Testament, they didn't use vowels. So they would have MSS or Manasseh, M-N-S-S. But it's interesting, in all the ancient texts, the N is lifted above the line um, in all the ancient uh, the manuscripts which is to the Jews who did this, they said that's a telltale sign that that was probably an insert just to try to take away from the blemish upon Moses' family, to try to throw it to Manasseh, who, by the way, was a king who lived far later than the book of Judges. So it's probably the case that, that this was probably the son of Moses. But either way, it gives us whether it, it, Manassas was somebody in between or Moses. The point is, this is a descendant of Moses. Which, by the way, does that heighten the idea that this is really, this really stinks? 
you know, that he isn't even living up to his family ancestry and his family history. And so it gives us that details about that individual. And they end up having their own new priestly line and their own new priestly tabernacle that is located up in the area of Dan. And so, and he reminds us, he says, this continues until the time of captivity, which is probably not the captivity that occurs in the 722, but probably the captivities that occurred when all of a sudden the Philistines started taking over and Saul loses the battle and there's that and so they want blessings upon their life we want to inquire what does God want us to do should we move or shouldn't we move so there's spiritual inklings let's put it that way that they have okay and they in in the end of the story they want their own worship center it's not because we want don't want this in our life but we want something that we can control that looks good in our own eyes it seems appropriate and we're doing that which is right on our own eyes by having a religious system that feeds our desires that we want. And so here they got these people that they're religious minded. They believe in God. Okay? They want to be involved in worship. They want God to bless them. That's what motivated Mo- Micah. Remember, he says, Now that I have a priest, I'll be blessed. There are individuals who, you know, they want religion, but they want religion on their own terms. That's a spiritual junk food. Okay? That people want to worship, but they want to worship on their own terms. Here they are, they're worshiping. They're religious, but they got no ethics. I mean, you and I can just sit here and go, okay, any evidences of no ethics in these people? Nothing inward? <laughs> Do you want to list it out? Okay. They're stealing one from another. A man steals from his mom. Okay. He gets stolen from. The tribe steals from private individuals. Oh, you just go right through. You have all these the ideas that, and mom's ethics, they're not real great. She's kind of blessing him because, you know, he admitted he stole without any consequences. You know, she's stealing from God. I, get, I dedicated holy 1,100 shekels. I'll give him 200. Aren't I spiritual? Okay. So you have the, oh, just the whole thing that's unfolding that these individuals, they have a religious mindset. They want to do things religiously, but they've got no ethics. In fact, let's take it a step further. They have no contentment. This is really important because if we put it in its context, contentment was a major issue in the Garden of Eden, was it not? Okay. Wasn't it part of the initial fall? Because Satan comes and he says, yea, hath God said, you should, you know, he doesn't want you to be like them. In other words, Adam and Eve from the very beginning, part of the fall was not being content with what God has done for them or provided for them. And part of worship is coming and saying, God, I am thankful for what you've given me, including trials and troubles. Isn't that what James 1 is about? My brethren count in all joy when you fall into okay that's the spirit of worship that's what that's a, an inner righteousness the outward activity of junk food spiritual you know religious activity is like okay i will serve god as long as god yeah everything is honky dory in my life and so here these people are now just to unfold let's go back to what joyce pointed out she made comment about this Levite that's moving around. Go all the way back in your Bibles, and you could study this, that in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, book of Numbers, as well as in the book of Judges, they were given 
Levitical cities. There are 48 of them that the Levites were to live in. And they were scattered throughout the entire 12 tribe area. They weren't like in one area and then they had to travel far. So you could have Levites who were in these cities. They weren't the only ones in these 48 cities, but they were to be in those cities so that they were easily accessible, being able to teach the word of God and get partial support from the nation of Israel. Plus that would be where they would be. And so you have these these cities. What's interesting is twice. It says twice in the text. If you go back into chapter 17, look at verse 7 and 8. Two times it says that he was in Bethlehem of Judea and he left that area where he had been sojourning. Bethlehem is not one of the 48 cities. This guy was living in a territory that wasn't one of the Levitical assigned cities, number one. And then he is on his part. You have as well the lack of, the, with this lack of contentment, a desire that everything become convenient to them. That everything is easy for them. Let me define it this, at this moment this way. Okay, Micah and his mom develop a religious center. They want to have their own ephod. They want to have their own graven images. They want to have their own priests that they can talk to. Wait a minute. Why do they need that? There is a worship center in Ephraim. It is called Shiloh. They have the high priests there. They have all the counsel you need. It just means you have to travel. Now, the one thing we don't know in the story, we don't know how far away from Shiloh he and his mom live. That's an unknown. Could it be a couple miles? Could it be several, several, you know, dec- uh, you know ten- tens times, times several miles away? But it's not far. They're in that one territory of Ephraim. But it's too inconvenient to have to travel to worship. It's easier if we have them in our back, back of our yard. Which is a total violation of the Word of God, but it's convenient. By the way, do people ever look for religion to become convenient in 2018? Okay, I will worship as long as it is convenient. I'll worship God as long as it fits what I want it to be. And so here they are, they're individuals who, quite frankly, they have outward religiosity, they have outward activity, they have you know, consent. If they were to sign a doctrinal statement, they'd probably sign a half-decent doctrinal statement in this. But the problem is, they really, it's just spiritual junk food for them. They have no depth. It's not real in their life the rest of the week. And by the way, if we start examining and saying, can we fall into the same trap? Let me see if I can throw it out this way. We get, but do some people have a Christian wedding, but they have no intention to live for the Lord as a couple? We, all, we have baby dedications. Because we want to say, okay, this is the appropriate thing to do, to dedicate ourselves to be godly parents. And those same parents at times could all of a sudden turn around and say, well, I did the motions, but God isn't going to tell me how to raise this kid. God is not going to say how I discipline this kid. God is not going to tell me what I need to do for spiritual training. I'm not going to listen when God talks about putting into their minds the word of God. That's the, I want my child to be able to choose for themselves. Or you have this idea that we carry Bibles. We haul the Bibles into church, and that's good. That's appropriate. But can that become a spiritual junk food for somebody, the carrying of a Bible to church? That they have the outward trappings, but they have no intention of listening to it. Could it even happen? in a church like ours, that we have the in the latter part of this week. And they were talking to this individual who asked, what do you do? Oh, I happen to be part of this church, and you know, would you like to come to our church? 
And they said, well, I've heard about your church. In fact, one of the people I know that's a nearby neighbor, uh, they come to your church, I, I believe, because they've invited me on a couple occasions to come to your church. And so, I, I don't recognize the names of the people, but it does illustrate to the fact that do we impact others by the words we use? And what we excited about God blessing, he doesn't use generic God. He hard is to say, I'm going to stand for the word of God, and it might affect a grade I get, but I'm standing for the word of God in a strong, gracious way. So we have all these challenges to be careful. I'm going to throw end up with this thought. Do you realize how challenging this is? We are living in a day and age that he says, this is the characteristic of Christianity in the latter days. They will have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. That this is typical. You and I are living in this age where there's all kinds of spiritual religious trappings, but there's not that inner conviction, that righteousness, that hunger for the Word of God, that desire to follow the Word of God, to hear the Word of God, to live according to the Word of God. We need to be different. We don't want to be spiritual junk food addicts. We want to be strong, nourished individuals by the Word of God and the will of God that's found by being close to the Lord God.